Hello, I'm Matthew Burrett. And I'm Taylor Romans, and this is Hard Beeswax, Experiences in Waldorf Education. This week on Hard Beeswax, we spoke with Matthew Moraine, a graduate of the Sacramento Waldorf School, class of 1997. Matthew's professional pursuits led him into the Marine Corps, where he trained as a C-130 pilot and served in Afghanistan. Since concluding his military career, Matthew has been a commercial airline pilot. We realize that we are just two individuals who are part of this global educational movement. And we want to be very clear that we are only speaking from our own experiences and from our own impressions. We do not presume to speak for the Waldorf movement as a whole. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for being with us today. Or Matt. Sorry, Matt. We have two Matthews here with us. We have Matthew Burrett, co-host, and Matt Moraine, our guest today. Thanks for being with us. I'm glad to be here. So uh, I understand that you and my co-host have, go back a while. There's How do a you lot guys of potential stories here on this episode. We do go back a while. So uh, both were first, uh, uh, we're both Waldorf lifers. I've been in uh, the Waldorf school uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. And then uh, we met on our first day of, uh, well, no, it was orientation for for St. John's. We went to St. John's together. So we spent four years in Santa Fe together going to St. John's. Yes, but that's actually not the very first time we met. The very first time we met was at a youth conference in Berlin, Germany. I'm not sure if you remember that. We didn't quite I mean, I met Angela Nussbaum and I kind of said hi to you. And uh, we were in Berlin at the Spannungsfeld Leben uh, Christian Community Youth Conference. And then it was after that that I saw you walking up the street towards St. John's with your long ponytail. And, uh, and then we went hiking on, on Monte del Sol. I remember that. We had a conversation on the top of Monte del Sol about where we're going to go. That's, that's what I remember. I don't remember Berlin, but yes, I was there. So, yeah. Amazing. Yep. Yep. Wow. Sorry, I'm lost in, lost in the history shuffle there. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matt, we like to start these conversations with kind of your Waldorf origins. How did Waldorf education come into your life? Were you born into a family that already was aware of Waldorf education? Is that something that came about as you came of schooling age? What was the, the maybe conception of your relationship with Waldorf education? So I was the uh, third child. I had two older sisters, and uh, I went to Waldorf because that's where my parents took me. Uh, but when I was born, I was uh, I was born in Camp Hill in Pennsylvania, so outside of Philadelphia. And my parents were essentially social workers, but they were within the uh, the Camp Hill network, and so they were already familiar with Rudolf Steiner and Waldorf, and so that was a natural place for us to go. In my particular case, we had just moved to Germany, and the Waldorf School movement is pretty big in Germany. And so that was where they intended to send us. And I was plugged into one of the uh, local schools there. Yeah. Was it, was your father training to be a Christian community priest at that point? Yeah, that's correct. So he went over a little bit before the family did. I, I think he did his first year. Now, these are kind of rough timelines. And then uh, during his second year, the whole family picked up and moved. And then uh, when he eventually finished that training, and was assigned a community. Then we moved uh, within Germany to that uh, second city. Um, this was in southern Germany in the state of Bavaria, uh, actually Baden-Württemberg. It was the town of Ulm. And uh, I went to kindergarten there. What are your earliest memories of kindergarten? 
Okay, so I take that back. I was actually in kindergarten in Stuttgart uh, for a year. And my first experience with that was actually terrifying because I was, what, newly six years old. And I didn't speak a lick of German. Oh my and gosh. I had this very <laughs> small sheltered community in Camp Hill surrounded by a lot of the, you know, Steiner softness and warmth and this this very social environment. It wasn't it wasn't kind of I, I wasn't born in in suburbia. And then I got dropped off in what to me seemed like this giant inner city school. And I didn't know anybody and I definitely didn't want to go. So I, I had to kind of be dropped off and then my mom had to make a run for it. And yeah. I was left standing there with my <laughs> crocodile tears and not knowing what to do. Oh no. <laughs> this was the original Waldorf school, right? In Stuttgart? No, I no. don't think so. Think so. Oh. Um, they, they, had, they had multiple ones. Oh, we, okay. we were, I could be wrong about that. The, the, this is all ancient history, but yeah, my day one was a little rough and you know it took a while to, to pick up the language and apparently the first word that i spoke in german at home after you know however long i'd been there was was teufel which is devil and so that was <laughs> you know you know auspicious start but I, I did eventually become fluent in german and um i did eventually uh kind of get into the the whole program there but so what took a little while. Yeah. How long did it take you to become proficient in German? I know as a kid, you absorb things maybe less intellectually, right? It's like yeah. you kind of just start repeating phrases that people use in certain contexts. And you're like, oh, I guess that means can I have water? Because they say it and then they get water, right? But do you remember a point where then you started kind of getting in the groove with German? I remember in first grade at the at the new school, this was the one in when. Uh, uh, I remember being confused about a lot of things a lot of, a lot of the time. So I'm pretty sure it wasn't fluent then. And obviously some of this is just the nature of being in first grade for the first time, right? That's yeah. just a confusing time. And, and so it's hard to tease out what is language and what is just the experience of being that age. But uh, I, I think by second grade, I was pretty much fluent with the, the speaking stuff. So that's what two solid years of immersion language. And I was there. Yeah. Which I think is probably pretty normal for a kid that age. Yeah. So did you have a fairly typical, you know, Waldorf household, no TV and wooden toys and, and stuff like that? Or how how, how was your family life in, around the Waldorf, you know, ethos? Probably very much in line with kind of the, the stereotypes. So uh, because we not only were typical Waldorf people, but we also had this Christian community tie-in and this whole anthroposophy tie-in from our parents. Uh, we were maybe like that a little bit more so. Yeah. And then also some of it was purely economic because as a you know priest supporting a, a family and my, my mom wasn't working at the time, uh, there just wasn't a lot of options. You know, I, I doubt we could have afforded a TV had we even wanted one, which of course we didn't. And so a lot of my toys were handmade and a lot of my early childhood time was spent finding ways of entertaining myself, which kind of like maybe a cat with a cardboard box. I would often like scoot around the floor with one of those. And <laughs> I, I learned how to carve early on. Um, and so I would uh, get this tree bark and I would kind of sit out on this little high rise balcony and, and whittle away at this, these little uh, really soft bark things. And I would, I would make things with my hands and, you know, yeah, it, it, was, it was a bootstrap version of the, the idyllic Waldorf experience. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, it, it probably was more, quote, stereotypically Waldorf than a lot of people who are spending a whole lot of money to buy handmade wooden toys for their kids, right? That, you yeah, know, yeah. maybe that's more, more aligned with the original spirit of it in the end. Yeah. But it's by, you know, first grade, I was walking to school with my sisters. Uh, they, there was a little bus route we would take. 
And I wasn't comfortable taking that initially, but Germany at the time was safe enough and, and small enough and homogenous enough that that was the norm. People took public transportation. And so as a little kid with my little school bag, taking myself to and from school, uh, that was not unusual. And so that just seemed totally normal. Wow. That's, that's amazing. So how, um, how many years were you in school in Germany? Did you do all of your first through eight there? No, no, I, I left, uh, I finished my fourth grade year and then we moved over the summer and then, uh, we moved to California and I started, uh, my day one of fifth grade in the Sacramento Waldorf school in California. So what was that transition like? Oddly, surprisingly difficult. So uh, I was obviously a fluent English speaker, so I had that going for me. But I had zero tie-in with any cultural reference at all because I hadn't seen U.S. TV ever. So I didn't know anything. I, I remember we had gotten our um, our house set up, and my dad was now working at this new Christian community church in Sacramento. And we were going to one of the first services where we were meeting in the community and they were all going to get to meet the new priest. And someone introduced me to this uh, other kid who was going to be in my class in fifth grade. And his, his uh, name was Kim. And he said, Oh, hi, you know, nice to meet you or something like that. And he said, give me five. And I, I didn't know what he meant. I was like, do you want $5? Like (laughs) five of what? And what he he meant was, you know, give me a high five and slap my hand. And he was, that was being awesome. But just as an illustration of how culturally adrift I was, I I had to learn all that stuff over again. So, so that ironically made my fifth grade year a little bit challenging because everyone else kind of thought I was slow because it didn't occur to them that this American kid who was fluent in English could be so far behind on, on all these other kind of social norms that were just a little bit different in Germany. Yeah. Wow. How, how did you handle that? Like, were you, so, I mean, for context, I was the kid whose TV mysteriously broke when I joined the Waldorf kindergarten. And, um, I faced something similar in those grades of all of these cultural references that I did not understand. I think I did a combination of pretending that I understood, right? Like, oh, yeah, 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 I know what that is. Sure, sure, sure. And then also having a few trusted people who I'd say, what, what is that? Can you please, can you please explain that to me <laughs> after the fact? But how, how did you cope? So the, the Sacramento Water School was your typical smaller Water School. So it was single track classes all the way through. We had 25 or 30 kids. Um, I had a great main lesson teacher. And so it, it, I was, I was being inserted into a very good classroom dynamic um, with a, a tight-knit group of kids, which is both good and bad. I think mostly good. Um, in this case, it allowed me to struggle a little bit, and I wasn't completely left by the wayside. So when I was finally able to integrate socially a little bit better, there was still a classroom there willing to accept me. So I've always been a little bit antisocial, a little bit uh, shy, reserved, um, in part because of these experiences, but but probably mostly just because that's just how I came into the world. You know, I, I don't want to I don't want to lay blame on circumstance for what's probably just who I am naturally. But yeah, uh, in in part, I responded by being a little bit quieter, um, never being sure if you know what's going on because maybe there's a reference you're missing uh, makes you a little bit less likely to be leading the pack with a new idea or a new joke that's going to fall flat and be embarrassing. So I I think uh, I tended to retreat into my head and be a little bit more shy than your average kid. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, probably still describes me to this day. 
I also remember you doing a lot of outdoor activities, right? Didn't you have summer camps and stuff like that that you went on? Yeah, during the during the summer, my dad would uh, organize these uh, backpacking trips, and uh, we did a bike trip one time. Um, and this this was a, actually a German cultural norm that he tried to bring over to the uh, the states. And so he would he ran the summer camp where uh, kids would from the community would go and spend three weeks out in the Sierras in pretty rustic conditions and and really just build community in a way that we don't do much anymore. At least I, I haven't seen that in, in the broader culture here much. And it, it was very old school, anthroposophical. It was no TV, no electricity. Cell phones weren't a thing back then. Yeah. But as a result, people came together and they still kind of knew how to do that. And people still had a corpus of songs that they could sing. And, you know, especially coming from the Waldorf community, uh, those, those camps were able to happen in a way that I would be surprised if they could happen now. Mm-hmm. It was a real echo of what was happening on the East Coast, because I, I attended a lot of those camps. And then when when I first heard that there was something similar with, with you and your, your father, um, I just I was probably sang some of the same songs and all and that kind of thing, too. Do you think that as a kid who maybe like struggled to connect some with the mainstream culture, that there was relief in the fact that there were activities like that, where then everyone was meeting on neutral ground out in the woods together. I think I was probably too oblivious to have been able to even be aware of that. So <laughs> while maybe, maybe that was happening in the background, I was unaware of it. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of my, my youth being oblivious to a lot of things, I think, which again, a lot of that is normal, yeah. but I may have been a little bit more so in that regard than, than typical. Yeah, and I think I I can say for myself in becoming like in deciding to become a Waldorf teacher, there was a lot there's been a lot of very conscious reflection to where I probably have now a lot more I, I'm imposing a lot more thought on my younger self than I had at the time, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like because we've been talking about it and thinking about it yeah, and right. um and you know, as you're trying to build like what am i going to teach people then you think about what did i learn right and and it's just a very very uh it's been very um lots of walks down memory memory lane <laughs> at least for me so uh, i one quick on that transition uh, i know you were asking about this before i didn't learn about this until i don't know maybe i was in high school or later but uh when i transitioned into this new uh american school in 5th grade my mother had reached out to my main lesson teacher ahead of time and, and kind of given her the the brief on on what she was about to get. And as a result, I was given a tremendous amount of latitude to be a little bit special as I was integrating. So for example, uh, I, I was reading Parsifal at the time, and I would do that in class because I was bored with the material. And I, I just assumed that she didn't know I was doing it, but really she was letting, letting me do this because my mom basically said, hey, look, this kid might need a little bit of extra help. And if you could be a little bit gentle with him, that would be nice. And so, again, that's something that only Waldorf really can can get you. And mm-hmm. she, she had um, the, the, the teacher, uh, her name was Marianne. Uh, this was her first class. And so she was a young teacher at the time. As a little kid, I didn't know, but she was probably early 20s. Wow. Um, she, she was fantastic. Probably one of the best uh, Waldorf teachers um, I've had in any context um, throughout my life. But just a... Uh, a naturally born teacher. And so in part, I got lucky just having her as a presence in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so, that really helped 
integrate. Yeah. I mean, um, in thinking of your, your time in fifth grade and middle school, um, I'm wondering what classes, if you remember any stuck, stood out for you, you, you just mentioned Parsifal and, um, yeah. How, how were classes in the middle school? Nothing comes to mind that, that, that jumped out. I, I didn't really have a sense of school as a, as an academic endeavor, which depending on how you look at it is either a strong endorsement for Waldorf or perhaps not, but I was probably one of those kids with my head in the clouds and I didn't even know that that was the case. I just assumed that I was the normal baseline and uh, I, I didn't really, I didn't have an academic understanding of what school was for. I was there yeah. kind of along for the ride and probably benefited from Waldorf being the way it is as a result because it, it wasn't it wasn't a testing ground where I had to prove myself. Mm -hmm. um, I was just kind of wandering around, checking out the world, mm -hmm. and probably in a pretty naive, innocent way. And Waldorf allowed me to do that in a way that I think would have been beaten out of me pretty hard by the system had I gone to a public school. Mm. Yeah, that is that is so interesting to think about when that kind of competitive comparison is introduced. Because I think at some point it it does become a factor. I think a lot of time that enters in with grades, you know, um, mm -hmm. in the transition in Waldorf schools, sometimes from middle school to high school. I know that many Waldorf schools have now started assigning grades in middle school in an effort to kind of maybe be more academically competitive or be more conscious in preparing students for high school. But I I do kind of resonate with what you're saying that there is there is kind of a beautiful freedom in just learning without an end game or here's how this fits into the greater context of my life or as a fifth grader saying oh wow if I don't do well on this math test then I may not go to college like <laughs> right you don't need that conscient like that consciousness at a young age and and um that's cool that you can recognize that I forget what year it was, maybe seventh grade, when we took our first bubble test, uh, some kind of state requirement standardized test. And uh, it was not a stressful event for me because I didn't understand its significance mm -hmm. and I didn't care one whit. And so this was just a, an odd thing. It's like, really, I have to fill in these silly little circles and answer these questions. And, you know, the, the art of the test became learning how to read the intent of the question as yes. opposed to the question, because my brain immediately meant to, well, if they meant it this way, then this might be the best answer. If they meant it this way, then this might be the best answer. But mm -hmm. because I was so oblivious to grades and their meaning and their, you know, future import, um, it, it was not a thing, not, not a source of stress. And it wasn't really until the end of high school that I started noticing or caring about grades. Once I realized that I had to put a GPA on my college applications. Mm. So, 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 Oh, go ahead. In in my case, I think it was beneficial, but that's largely based on my personality. I, I think for a lot of people, uh, the reality is in the world we live in, in order to go to college, you need those grades. And so you need to compete in the same game that everyone else is playing. And in, in there's a degree to which Waldorf is playing a totally different game. And it's difficult to translate the results of that game into the broader game that everyone else is playing when you go to college. We've kind of touched on this, but I... I know a lot of people who played the game, went to college, played the game, went out into the world and played the game, and then late 20s said, why am I playing the game? <laughs> and, yeah. and are now 
you know, kind of doing something unexpected or, you know, kind of finding a financial reality that's enough, but focusing more on where do I live? What are my surroundings like? Do I get to travel? You know, it is it is a fascinating question because I think like how how there is this pressure or there there is this you don't want to preclude someone from participating in in the financial rat race if that's what they want Mm -hmm. right you want to equip individual people for anything but i don't know is i agree with you i i think their waldorf schools have a challenge of saying how how do we prepare people for all of it Right. Right. So I think one way to look at it is to say Waldorf education is a very broad generalist level of education. So you're you're teaching kids how to learn and how to teach themselves to a degree that public schools don't because public schools are so metric driven. You're teaching the test and you're I think it even boils down to the way you synthesize information. So if you're teaching a test, you're providing data packets and you're telling kids precisely how to assemble them. And there's one right answer that will get you the correct answer on the test. And that is a very different process from, you know, exploring something holistically from the ground up and learning how to um, synthesize that data yourself. Because inherent in the idea of learning how to synthesize something is this idea that you're you're failing in a positive way. So you try to stick it together, it doesn't work. You try another way, it doesn't work. You try it again, oh, hey, success. Now you've figured out something on your own, you've actually learned something. And then you can build on that success, but then as soon as you figure that out, it's like on to the next thing. And then it's failure, 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 success. And then you move on to the next thing where you fail again. So you're always kind of trying to push for that cusp where you're failing. And that's very hard to do in a, a bubble test environment where the metric is success and it's tied to money and all this stuff. So public schools try not to let their kids fail. And ironically, I would argue are producing precisely that. Whereas the Waldorf system does a more holistic ground up education, but it's more difficult to translate into a bubble test because it's it's a question of whether or not you're trying to succeed in the short term or in the long term. And right. I think Waldorf is much more of a long term view, but the short term cost is you're not going to be competitive on a bubble test compared to some mathlete because you spent you know however many hours in your week doing movement or art or yeah. arrhythmia or whatever it is, and you you didn't practice your time tables a billion times. Yeah. Maybe you only did it a hundred. So it, it's it's an interesting way. It, it really is an apples to oranges comparison. And that's one of the biggest challenges trying to explain to non-Waldorf people what Waldorf education really is about. Yeah, we had our motto at our school for a long time being education for a whole life, which is speaks to that longer term picture that you just mentioned. Yeah, and uh, I remember there was a while in Austin where the bumper stickers were, where every student is an honor student. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> or like education outside the box, right? You, you see a lot of that, like that, those taglines in, in, in a, you know, a kind of marketing-esque effort to explain what we do. Yeah. Right. I, I'm wondering, oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to dovetail off that. You, you, you were kind of getting at, you know, what did I remember as, as, as kind of highlights from my Waldorf education? And a lot of these things that I'm touching on, I think now would actually make me not as competitive. And so things that I, I value are those same things that would have made it difficult for me to get into a competitive college, for example. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't struggle academically. I, I, I'm no genius, but I kind of coasted through, you know, fat, dumb and happy and oblivious to all those like technical metrics in the background. Yeah. But at the same time, depending on where you are, 
that that can be a significant downside because you're you're not playing the game as well as someone else. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because on the other side, I also see like the the value of a college education is decreasing because it's so becoming so ubiquitous, right? Like it, it I, I don't know. I, I almost feel like we're on, we are on, we've been playing a game and we're on the cusp of that game changing radically. Yeah. Because I, I remember I, uh, I have a family member who is a, an investment banker or he's more of an investment consultant. And he was talking about this, like the student loan, bubble. <laughs> yeah. And he anticipates that that is going to be the next financial crisis is that there's just going to be this monumental weight of these looming student loans that are going to, and, and we see it now. I, I, I'm assuming you and Matthew are around the same age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I see in my peers that, you know, the, the financial milestones that were typical in our parents' generation are no longer, are no longer reachable for many people. The cost of homes, the cost of, you know, wages, the cost of, of groceries, all of those things have escalated while wages have not grown. And and so much of it is due to crippling student loans, you know. So I I almost wonder, like, are Waldorf students maybe, perhaps, going to be prepared for this next thing that we can't even anticipate yet? Because I I don't... I don't know. I mean, I'm grateful for my college, <clears throat> excuse me, for my college education and the doors it opened. But when I think about what I use on a daily basis or the, the moments in my career where I drew on things that made me successful, there was very little that I actually got sitting in a classroom with a professor that I, I think I'm drawing on in my life. Mm-hmm. And that, that may be radical and... I do need to say that I was a college guidance counselor. (laughs) (laughs) No, but the the value proposition of of the existing system is, uh, I think, very much in doubt. So as the value of the degree in practical terms has gone down, the cost of it has gone up and the earning potential that it generates has gone down. So, you know, those curves are intersecting at some point and it's probably a different place for each each college. But I, I think we're beginning to see that in enrollments dropping and some of these, uh, you know, higher priced mid tier schools are just not able to attract students because mm-hmm. they've, they've, they've kind of lost the bubble on it. So then the question is, what are the skills that actually make you successful in life as opposed to, okay, I played the bubble game. I'm this, you know, one hit wonder. I'm, I'm, I'm a mathlete and I'm great at that or whatever it is, but I can't tie my shoes, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's quite as simple as that, because I think for us, looking back on our Waldorf education, it's easy to say, oh, those skills I didn't use or those skills I used, but I didn't realize it at the time. But I think there's also a value in the fact that, as you were mentioning, you had the space, you had your teacher in fifth grade looking at you and saying, oh, you know, I actually see that what this student needs is more time or to read Parsifal or, or whatever. And, you know, I just think it's, it's easy to say, to quantify skills and say, well, I don't need that now. But I mean, a couple different 
you know, coincidences or life situations differently, you might have actually needed your, you know, core choir skills or some other skills or, you know, your, your whittling carving skills. Um, who knows, right? They, they had this annoying phrase in the uh, military called uh, perception is reality. Mm-hmm. And it always bugged me because, of course, A, it's not true. But um, in some real practical sense, it is true. And it, it ties in with this metric blindness where you you can only see what you measure. And if you're measuring the wrong things, then you're getting bad data. And then your outputs are necessarily bad as well. And th- this this kind of ties in, okay, what, what should we use as a stand-in for Am I doing the right things? Am I learning the right stuff for the future? And am I doing well at at that? And so, you know, the, the bubble test is an easy target to pick on because it is so obviously not adequate to the task of assessing whether or not a student is capable of learning and is going to be great. Now, to a degree, we don't have great tools. You know, they say apparently IQ is, is the most uh, reliable predictor of future success, and that correlates very tightly with how well you do on a bubble test. So it can maybe uh, stratify people on on broad skill sets, but is that really something we need? And do you necessarily only want the smartest kids in college? And, and then, of course, you have to, if you're going to be very data dependent, then you're going to have to stick with that and say, okay, well, only the people who test really well in this one area, namely, you know, say an SAT test, get to come in. And I think colleges have tried to back away from that and say, well, maybe we need to look at more of the the whole picture but then you you invite all this bias and and now it's a question of how do you how do you fairly assess someone when there's no objective metric so you can either have a bad objective metric that's very narrow or you can have a broad loose set of metrics that is you know subject to manipulation and bias and so it's, it's a complicated question yeah it is and i think so much of it hinges on our very very narrow idea of what a successful life or a successful adult looks like right we have we have as a society what i think is probably a very narrow definition and so we take the huge broad spectrum of human beings and we try and measure them all up against one single definition of what it means to be successful as an adult Mm. and you know i think that if that metric was more broad then I think that would trickle down to a much more broad acceptance of of paths, right? It is okay to take this different path out of high school. It is okay to take this different path outside of high school. I mean, we, we've seen a huge defunding in shop programs, in um, welding programs, in public high schools, because we got really narrow in if you want to be successful, you need a college education, right? This is This yeah. is what success means. And I think... I'd love to talk to you about, you know, your choice to go into the military, because this is like, to me, I, I see all of these different paths that can lead toward a human being who has a fulfilling life, who can feed themselves and their family and who has a roof over their head. And, you know, right. Like, I just I, I see those two being connected of let's widen the our assessment of success and then through that widen our the, the range of possibilities of ways to get there. But we, we stopped about fifth grade, I think, <laughs> in your biography. So I before know, we true. get past college, let's... Wow. let's, we, we, let's... Went, we went out there. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, I just want to call out while we're, we're pausing here that uh, Matthew is actively working on a piece of beeswax right now. Um, so he's thinking with his fingers, and I think that's just the perfect encapsulation of. of yeah, we have a pile of beeswax. Hang on, let me just show you. Yeah, there. Yeah, and if you were here oh, in person, you you would have your own your own stick I here. Matthew is working on the platonic solids very predictably. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the, the proportions there, that, that's, that's professional grade right there. <laughs> well, it actually was going to go, when my, one of my first questions for you was going to be, what does hard beeswax mean for you when you heard the, the title? Because you were one of the first people I, I approached with the possible name of the podcast being hard beeswax. And I just wanted to hear what, what your impression is of, of that title and what it means to you. Well, it, it, it's spot on. I mean, you, it, it, there, there's something visceral in recalling what it's like to feel and smell and uh, work the, the beeswax. So it, it sounds like a simple thing to take a, a piece of beeswax and take the little plastic wrapper off and turn it into something, but it, it actually is a pretty complex process. So you're, you're mentally engaged, you're physically engaged, you have to get enough blood flow to get the thing going. You have to come up with that idea. You have to mess with it, struggle with it a little bit, and then act, actualize it. And it's a very, also a very forgiving medium. So if you take away too much here or add too much there, it's very easy to fix. Mm -hmm. And so it really is the ideal learning medium for, you know, taking taking a thought process and manifesting it in the world right right here now. And it's 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 a short process. I mean, it takes what ten or fifteen minutes to come up with a, a little figure, mm -hmm. but it's a it's a very iterative process, and it's a it's a great learning tool for. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a creative process from from ground from zero to one hundred in fifteen minutes. Nice. Yeah, that that about sums it up. <laughs> so, jumping back into your biography, I'm curious, especially you know, for someone who had a family who was so ingrained and rooted in anthroposophy, was there ever a question of whether or not you were going to go on to a Waldorf High School, or was that an inevitability, an expectation? How did you feel as an eighth grader? about going on to a Waldorf high school, I'd, I'd like to hear, because that's a point where a lot of people choose to leave. So I, I'm just wondering what your experience was like going through that transition. Um, it, it was always kind of assumed. I think very briefly, maybe just out of an excess of caution, um, my parents asked me if I wanted to go to a public high school. And the idea of going to a, a public high school uh, terrified me because, you know, you've got, I just wasn't, ready for a big impersonal environment like that. So uh, I ended up staying at the, the the same school I went to, you know, the, the the middle school line and the high school line were, you know, one hallway away. And it was kind of like an outdoor setup. So uh, all our hallways at the Sacramento Water School were outside because mm -hmm. it's, it's a pleasant climate almost all the time. So we had these little outbuildings and these covered walkways between them. And it was a beautiful little you call it campus right next to this big bend in the river with some rapids and you know it was it was your it was california version of of ideal waldorf but um yeah it was never really a question and uh in terms of expectations uh i was also instilled with this idea that you go through 12th grade and then you go to college mm -hmm. and then you get to pick whatever you want to do with your life and so there was never really an option or a question for us my sisters and i whether or not we'd go to college yeah. which was uh, a deliberate choice on my parents' part, I learned later, because neither neither of them went to college. My mom later got her degree, but um, that was only when she was an adult. So they they carefully kind of gave us this one idea of success by saying, you're going to go to high school and then you're going to go to college. So mm -hmm. for me, that was always just kind of the path. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So then what was high school like? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was, wasn't that much different. I eventually got to drive and then got to leave campus. And, um, you know, we got a little bit more independent, but it was, it was obviously a seamless transition from going on the same campus from eighth grade to, to high school. So, uh, yeah. Did you have, um, a, a particular block or, or teacher that stood out for you in high school? Um, I had a couple of great teachers. Um, I, one didn't stand out head and shoulders above the rest, the way my main lesson teacher did for me when I was younger. Um, I think for me, most of my learning in high school occurred socially, mm -hmm. uh, as I, I, as I got maybe a little bit more, more normalized and a little bit more in, in tune with people. Um, I, I think that that was a low bar to set for me just to, to get more in tune didn't, didn't take very much. So I've never been great with people. I've always been a little bit more hand and head oriented than, than people oriented. Hmm. Yeah. The, the people really emerge in high school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard. They're hard to avoid. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I guess on the socialization front, one thing that I found really helpful was uh, in, I want to say eighth grade, I started doing karate. And this was a, a a local place, and it had nothing to do with Waldorf. Everyone who went there was had had no no concept of of me being any different than any other kid at some random high school. So that was really my 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 first good close look at you know your your average everyday Americans who had no idea what Waldorf was, and and that was a super positive place for me. The, the people who ran it were um, very much into this uh, intentional like mind space awareness living. And so, so they, they, they tried to get kids to, to show up and, and pursue excellence for its own sake. Hmm. And they did that through their teaching of martial arts because they loved it and they thought it was a great skill, but it was, it was less about learning how to fight and it was more about, you know, developing kids. So that was kind of in line with the Waldorf mission, but just coming from a totally different place. Hmm. And, and so having, having that was hugely helpful for me. So I, I used to have a anger management problem and I was insecure and, and temperamental and I would get really mad. <laughs> Sorry. One, one, one example of this is when I was, a, when I was a kid, one time I was chasing my sister for something. I don't even remember what, and she was scared and slammed her door and locked it. And I was so angry that I just kept charging and I put my head through the door. <laughs> and it, you know, one of those, one of those, thin little doors. I mean, it didn't cause any injury, but yeah. just as an indication of the, the lack of emotional control on my part. Mm -hmm. And then as I started taking karate within probably six months of that, that just all kind of went away. And as my confidence in, in, in my, my abilities and, and kind of having a, a physical outlet for, for some of that emotional energy, uh, it, it made me a much calmer person. And so I think people usually describe me now as even keeled. And I, I lay that at the, at the feet of that martial arts training. Nice. I hear a lot of people who have, I feel like that's a common story with martial arts of it's like kind of channeling the thing, channeling that fire somewhere. Yeah. That isn't a door. <laughs> so to tell us a little bit about your senior project then. Gosh, I don't remember my senior project. I remember my <laughs> project. Uh, I think I was probably checked out and didn't care at that point. Uh, in eighth grade, I, I made a, uh, a giant balsa wood model airplane of a, of a, a World War II style B-17. Cool. Um, be like six months. It was cool. Um, I don't remember what my senior project was, so it must have been pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like that, the little that I've gleaned from you, I'm like, that That feels like your brand. You're like, I did something. It was great. I've moved on. <laughs> so you, you mentioned at that point being pretty checked out. What was Where was your head at coming into the end of your Waldorf journey? Were you just so ready to be done? I, I was. So I, w- I was maybe um, free-spirited, independently minded, whatever. Um, I was given a lot of latitude as a kid. So I, I was way too cool for school by the time I was a senior. Mm. Um, I, was, I was ready to be on my own and out. So then what, what did you do next? And you talked about there kind of being an expectation in your family that you would go to college. Could you talk a little bit about what that process was like of deciding, you know, looking for a place to go after high school, what you decided, what you were looking for in an institution, maybe... Could you speak to that? Sure. Uh, so I had no idea what I wanted to do, no idea what I was looking for. My next oldest sister, uh, she had um, gone and enrolled at St. John's. So two years before I did, she went to St. John's and she ended up being there a year before moving on to another school. When I was, I guess, a junior, I went to go visit her and I sat in on one of the seminars and I was like, this is awesome bunch of nerds talking philosophy um <laughs> so when it came time for me to do that i you know I, I i'm sure i procrastinated and all of a sudden my mom was like hey applications are going to be due in a month it's like where are you going to apply i was like uh how about st john's so i applied to st john's and um in a spectacularly unintelligent move i didn't apply anywhere else and i didn't want to go visit anywhere else and i didn't yeah i was just totally lazy about it and i said well if i get in great and if i don't whatever i'll do something else And luckily somehow I managed to get in. So I dodged that bullet and I, yeah, I I essentially chose St. John's because a, I knew it was cool and it, you know, it it just immediately fit when I went there. It's like, I can see myself here. Mm -hmm. So I knew that that was, that was a viable option and I was just too lazy to explore other options. Or efficient. If that's another way of looking at it, you are super efficient. I'm just saying that because personally, that's what I did too. I only applied to St. John's and figured if I didn't get in, I would just apply somewhere else. The Johnny spirits called to you from afar. (laughs) Fair enough. But in my case, I I don't, I don't, I don't deserve that. Um, (laughs) There was definitely a a negative element of laziness and and just kind of being unaware of the consequences of, okay, Great. You really want to go to St. John's, but maybe you should put in like three or four safety schools. Yeah, I just I just wasn't that smart. <laughs> so then you became a Johnny. What was it? What was yep. it like going from uh, Sacramento Waldorf to uh, St. John's? So I, I, I love St. John's. Um, I really enjoyed the program. I, I love the outdoor stuff. I loved Santa Fe. Uh, I think that my downfall at St. John's was that I was a terrible student. Because I was, I was lazy, and on some intellectual level, I understood that it was important. Mm-hmm. But if I was interested in a topic, I would work work really hard, and I would actually try to understand it, and I would write a good paper on it, and I would delve into it. Some things didn't tickle my fancy, and so I would do the bare minimum, and I would turn in shit papers, and you know sometimes I wouldn't do the work, and I was just from a technical standpoint, I was a terrible student. Yeah, it wasn't that I was incapable of doing any of the work. I was just lacking the big, big, big picture and I didn't have the uh, discipline to do college the right way. And my grades reflected that fact. I can relate to that. 
<laughs> yeah, but you, but you, you were also, you know, you could sit and hold the conversation in, in, in a way that, that spoke to your intelligence. And so you also skated by because you could, you could really have a conversation and impress the tutors and, and <laughs> hold your own. Yeah, but, you know, being able to skate by on the bare minimum was not necessarily a feature or something that was good for me. You know, same thing with high school. I was, yeah. I, 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 I was able to get away with being lazy. And so some of these kind of diligence issues never got sorted out because nobody ever called me on it. And I was, I was allowed to be a mediocre student up until then. And I continued to be a mediocre student through, through college. It wasn't because I wasn't capable of being a good student uh, intellectually. It was, it was that I didn't have the, I didn't have the nuts and bolts skill set to be a good student in terms of, okay, this is boring. I don't like this, but I have to do it anyway. Mm. So mm -hmm. I would blow it off and just not do it. And so that's, that's not a, not a great way, but, but I mean, Again, I, I really delved into the things that I liked and I really enjoyed the program. I loved reading. So in, in many ways, St. John's was a natural fit for me. Um, I think if I had, I would love to go back and do it over again because I would get so much more out of it as an adult with, with a, a better skill set for learning. Mm. But that's probably true of, of any college kid anywhere. Yeah. And so then the question is, okay, so I got a degree, check in the box. Now the world is your oyster, right? Yeah. Right. Well, this is for me a really interesting turn in in your life because I actually know a little bit more of it. And talk a little <laughs> bit about how you went from St. John's then into the Marine Corps. Okay, so that wasn't an immediate jump. Um, well, you did do fair, OC, I, you did do OCS between junior and senior year, right? I explored the option, and and so. Uh, I, I essentially recognized this weakness in myself that I, I was not a good student. I was not diligent. I didn't have the discipline to kind of do what needed doing. And I was a little bit too head in the clouds. And so intellectually, I could appreciate that as a problem. And I wasn't able to bootstrap fix myself um, because, you know, when it came time to wake up early to start working on that paper, I would roll back over and go to bed. So, okay, I've, I've got a problem and how can I fix it? You know, my my parents didn't necessarily have the ability to instill that in me. And, you know, it wasn't really about someone else fixing it for me. It was the, now the question became, okay, how do I solve this for myself? And so that seemed about as far away from my background and Waldorf and St. John's as you could get. So I said, well, what about the military? So I looked at, uh, I honestly don't remember the exact origins of, of why I came up with that. But you, I think you wanted to be a doctor initially, right? Because mm -hmm. your eyesight... You you had you hadn't gotten your the the eye surgery yet, so you didn't think you could be a pilot. If I remember right, you were thinking about going to medical school. That that may have been like a pie in the sky version of it, but um, the the Marine Corps would not have been the right solution for medical school. So oh. uh, if I ever thought about being a doctor, that was kind of you know maybe like a a, a little kid wanting to be a firefighter um oh. that that wasn't it that there was no direct connection between that and and the marine corps but i i felt like okay if if i'm gonna get get, get some discipline and whatnot then then maybe this is the way to go so i i did that and i explored that and you know it was definitely very very different from what anything i had experienced before so i i met with this uh with the recruiter and he came to campus one time and he was kind of wide-eyed and like oh my god where am i <laughs> uh, this kid? and and uh the the ocs experience i had the first time was actually uh on under a ground contract 
And so I went and essentially did 13 weeks of boot camp in Virginia. This was uh, officer candidate school. So it was a uh, commissioning program. So once you graduated, then you would you would kind of swear in. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it's at the officer side, you have the option to accept or decline your commission. So I made it through OCS, um, which was a grind and quite the experience in and of itself. Um, so they offered me the commission. And then at that point, I turned it down. Which is really rare, right? It's really rare um, because what kind of an idiot would do that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, th- that is just, I mean, and again, I'm not a Johnny, but I have a perception of the Johnnies. And I mean, I think it's pretty incredible that you recognize that in yourself and then sought out a place where you thought you could maybe get some external... You know, discipline, discipline, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Th- then I was like, okay, well, I I graduated graduated St. John's. I don't have uh, great grades. I decided not to do the military. What am I going to do? Um, you know, hey world, come come take me. I- I'm ready. And of course, the world didn't want me because I was outcompeted by people who worked a little harder in in high school. So I thought, okay, well, what skill set do I have? Well, I can I can jawbone with people. Maybe I'll go be an attorney. Um, that of course, actually, I, I guess I'm skipping a step. So, uh, I, I met my, I, I met a girl in eighth grade. She was in my class. Uh, we ended up dating through high school and then we kind of dated off and on in college. And and then my senior year, we kind of got back together. She was doing a five-year program. I ended up moving to San Diego for a year and lived with her. And I was, kind of waiting, waiting for her. I didn't know what to do. Um, I did some odd jobs here and there, briefly moved to Sacramento. Uh, I, I thought maybe architecture, I had done this architecture, architecture internship and I was working at this company that uh, did trade show exhibits. And I was, it was kind of a cool job. I, was, I got to manufacture, I got to travel a little bit. And then I, I, I tried to get into 3D computer aided design work for this company at the end, but it was too small and didn't really, tickle my fancy anyway. And so I, I ended up leaving there. We moved to Washington DC because she got an internship at NPR and that was a good enough excuse for me to quit. So we packed up our stuff, drove across the country, moved to Washington DC. And that's when I had the idea, okay, well, what do I do now? Maybe I'll, I'll try to go to law school. Well, it turns out that if you're a bad student, law school is probably not the place for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I just wasn't competitive. So I, I, I started looking at LSAT books and, and studying. I took a few classes like LSAT prep classes. And I, I think I could have cracked the LSAT, although I never actually took the test because um, it's just logic games and puzzles. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it's, it's, it's a skill set like an athlete where you, you just practice it and you get good at it. You, you meet the wicket and you say, okay, I, I, I have enough generalized intelligence to maybe be useful as an office drone somewhere working for some big law firm. So I ended up as a paralegal in the interim, thinking initially that that would help me figure out what area of law I wanted to focus in, maybe build some relationships, get a get a reference, whatever. Uh, realized that being a lawyer was not in my future because it was too much desk work, yeah. and I was going to uh, hate my life, to put it mildly. I was working at a, as a rock climbing instructor at a uh, indoor rock gym to stay sane in the meantime. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, well, here I am. I'm in my mid-20s. 
I, I have no plan. I have no prospects. I don't really have a GPA that's going to open any doors for me. And I'm, I'm at a loss. And kind of to your earlier point, uh, I can support myself and put a roof over my head, which I was doing. But then I was working two jobs and never around. So at one point I was paying, I want to say it was like 600 bucks a month for a studio apartment. And to me, that seemed exorbitantly expensive, mm-hmm. laughable now, but <laughs> at the time relative to my paycheck, it was pretty expensive and I was never there. So I stopped paying rent. I moved out and I didn't move in anywhere for a little while, which is a polite way of saying I chose to be homeless for a while. And I lived in my van and, uh, you know, that was not a sustainable place. So kind of a, kind of a low point. Um, but it saved you money. It did. It did. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was a practical solution to a, a practical problem. So it's, you know, there's, there's, there's homelessness by choice and then there's homelessness because you actually are homeless. And I certainly wasn't that. So I don't, I don't claim to know what that's like, but you know, I, I'm, I'm in my mid twenties now I'm adrift. I have no idea what to do. And I go to this routine. eye checkup, and my doc says, Hey, you are actually a great candidate for uh laser eye corrective surgery. So I went down that option and I said, gosh, you know, nobody wants to hire me. I don't have a job. I can't support really anything other than myself. I'm living in my van and this sucks. I should probably come up with a life plan. So that that's when I kind of went back to the uh, military idea because they would actually employ me. Hmm. Yeah. So that's right when I was coming I back from back. Peace Corps, I think. Yeah. So I, I went back to the recruiter and said, hey, um, what would it take for me to get an air contract to, to fly airplanes? Because, I mean, the, the ground pounder side of it, which was my initial one, I, I knew that wasn't going to be a good personality fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, just just based on the, the level of intensity and the fact that, you know, you're expected to now uh, be on the ground and ground combat roles. And mm-hmm. that that's a pretty intense version of the Marine Corps. And it's it's not a, a transferable skill, really. Yeah. So there are some, some people... Uh, leading skill sets there, but it's not a it's not a, a job skill set. So if they could teach me to fly an airplane, then maybe that would be a job skill set. So I went through that whole rigmarole. I went back to OCS uh, and I had to redo OCS again, 13 more weeks of the same boot camp uh, a couple of years later, which required a whole series of paperwork things because people said, wait, you've done this before? Like, what are you doing? Like you dropped out. No, you didn't drop out. You declined your commission. What? (laughs) (laughs) So, but because I had gone through the program and I didn't quit, they, they couldn't really say no. There's like, okay, that's weird. Never seen that before, but yeah, Roger that, you know, you, you upheld your end of the bargain. So we'll give you another chance if you want to come back. And, you know, some people saw that as, as, you know, extra commitment. Um, some people thought that was just weird, but yeah. So I, I went through again. Um, Again, I, I finished the program. They offered me my commission, and this time I accepted it. It was a direct entry commission, so I commissioned basically like that weekend. Wow. And then uh, I went to six months of kind of learning how to be a, a general Marine officer at the basic school. And then from there, I went over and kind of got borrowed out to the Navy to go through Navy flight training. And, and so that's how I ended up as a pilot. And I have a question because your eighth grade project was building a model plane. So had that been yeah. a, an interest and curiosity for you for a while, or was that just a random coincidence? Uh, probably a random coincidence. I, I was not like one of those kids who grew up wanting to be a pilot. I didn't know anyone who was a pilot. Um, the, the 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 one possible influence there was that uh, when I was working at that trade show exhibit uh, company, um, one of my coworkers was a helicopter pilot, mm. and so he 
talking about helicopters and flying stuff. So that was pretty much the only insight I had into what it was like to be a pilot. And so I had some idea that, okay, this is actually a good job and fun and people have a passion for this. But no, I, I never had a passion for flying. I mean, you know, sure, airplanes are cool, but it, it wasn't a driving force. This was kind of an opportunistic, like, I need to put food on the table and, you know, the government will pay me to go do this. So. And at that point, did you see learning, you know, getting the training through the military as being a transferable, you know, if you could do that, then potentially you, you had the potential to fly commercially and it was a transferable skill at that. Were you thinking about it in that way? Uh, loosely, I, I wouldn't say that I had that much of a um, a plan. I, I, I knew some of the options, um, but I was going to do my minimum commitment and then kind of see where things went. And and so uh, minimum commitment in this case, uh, when when I signed the paperwork, it was an eight year payback on after you got winged. So by the time you got winged, I was already three years in. So this was like 11 years minimum commitment. Wow. Yeah. But you're you're being so self um, you're being so humble right now, because when when Matthew went through OCS the second time, it was really much more intense for you, right? Because it was during wartime. It was like wartime OCS rather than peacetime OCS. And I remember you doing something like you basically like, was it shin splints so bad that you actually had a fractured leg? You ended you ended up hurt. Yeah. So instead of instead of going to, to TBS right away, they had to like put me in this. Uh, they put me in this little holding pattern where I had to heal up before I could start the next training phase. Wow. So I had a, I had a couple months where I couldn't start training because I was still healing from that. And and I'm just naive to the way it all works. Were you what was there the possibility of deployment? Oh, it was guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah, this this is all post 9-11 um, military. Yeah. So, yeah, especially, you know, a, a flying unit. And yeah, there, there, there was no doubt that you would be deployed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is this is active duty Marine Corps um, post 9-11. So, yeah, there, there, there was there was no question about that. Well, and tell the story a little bit more about how you actually got assigned, because I've always thought you as being very lucky in your in your life's path. I mean, it didn't seem like anything. I mean, yeah. at the one hand, you were living out of your van, not knowing what to do. But when you look back on it, there, there's so many times, at least from my recollection, where it was like you wanted, you had an idea, a goal, and then, and then you achieved that goal. And it was, at sometimes it was like so unlikely that that happened and then it actually did. So could you talk a little bit about about that? So the first one was with respect to uh, the laser eye surgery because my doctor said I should do um, LASIK. And I, I called up the recruiter and said, hey, um, I'm going to go do LASIK and I just want to make sure that that is currently accepted by the medical establishment. And the answer was yes. So I went in for a LASIK consult with the intent of getting LASIK performed. And because of the shape of my eyeball, um, they said, we can't do LASIK on you. There's essentially not enough material, so we can't cut that extra flap. But not all is lost. We have this other procedure. It's actually the older procedure called uh, PRK. And that's where they uh, they shape the lens of your eye on the outside instead of cutting a flap first and then shaping under the flap. The end result is more or less the same, but uh, PRK is a painful process because they have to kind of rub off the epithelium layer of your eyeball. They do the the, the cutting of, of the lens and then 
you don't you're blind for a week until that little like lizard skin layer on the outside um grows back well yeah and and so they gave me these pain drops and they said hey here's pain drops if it's really bad but understand that if you take these then it's going to hamper the healing and your vision is going to be less effective so you know i'm now terrified because i i have this like you know thread of hope for you know finding a, a life's path in front of me and if i take these pain drops that might take away that option so i, I remember just laying in this very sad depressing apartment and in, in um <laughs> Gaithersburg, Maryland, or wherever it was. Yeah, I was on uh, the couch at that point. Yeah. <laughs> my eyeballs just hurting like the Dickens and not feeling like I could do anything about it. And, you know, I, I, could, I mean, I couldn't even watch movies or anything. So I'm just laying there for a week waiting for my eyeballs to hear. Oh, and you had to listen to Matthew just talk that whole time? I'm going to stop being such a whiner. Yeah. And then I guess the other lucky part was uh, in in my aircraft selection. Once well, I you had, came out with twenty twenty vision, just to finish that off. Yes, like, it worked. Wow, it, it worked. worked. Now, to be fair, um, that procedure does have a very high success rate. You know, ninety eight percent plus or whatever. Wow. So it yeah. was probably a a rational risk to take. Yeah. Amazing. And then you were talking about your your selection. Oh, well, I'm sorry, I I forgot the thread. Um, so I went back to my recruiter and said, hey. I have PRK. Um, that's the older one. I was pretty sure that was covered. And he said, oh, yeah, well, obviously, because we don't cover LASIK. You know, basically, if I had gotten LASIK surgery, then I would not have been physically qualified to even put in my application. Wow. So, so that was the lucky part, you know. Yeah. I tried to get the, the, the wrong, quote unquote, eye surgery and do the shape of my eye. I ended up being defaulted in, into the only one they accepted at the, at the time. Since then, they've changed the policy and LASIK is now accepted. But at the time, it wouldn't have been for me. And I was I was uh, pushing the age limits at this point. I was 20, probably at this point, I was, I was 26 and a half or whatever. Um, by the time I commissioned, I was, uh, the, the cutoff is 27 and a half. So I just snuck up under there. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And then you were, you were mentioning your, your air selection. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Essentially, you get guaranteed a spot in flight school day one as part of your contract. Uh, that's what the air contract piece meant. But then you have to actually make it through flight school. Mm -hmm. And so that was the first time in my life that I tried really, really hard academically. Yeah. And um, it, it was a competitive environment. And, you know, I worked my ass off to get through flight school and I made it because, you know, the risk was if I didn't get through flight school, I would be reassigned to a, a ground um, job. Yeah. I'd still have to do it. I, I couldn't leave the military. Mm -hmm. I was stuck in the military. It's just, you know, either you, you get through flight school and you get to stay in aviation or you fail out of flight school and you end up as a, some other job that you don't want. Wow. Yeah. And then, I mean, just to, I think the next, the next step was, was after you finished flight school. Um, I mean, I remember you having dreams of being like Top Gun fighter pilot you know, F-22 or whatever the most radical fighter pilot was. And then slowly, because you met your, your future wife and you started to change. And, and so the moment you got to choose, is that still part of the selection then? How yeah. So, so you, you have a, you have a, a score. So everything you do in the airplane is graded. They give you this like composite score. Um, and based on that, it, it gives you a, 
they, they essentially take, uh, you know, the best student down to the worst student, the best student gets to go first. Um, <clears throat> and so the better you do, the more likely you are to end up doing what you'd like to do because mm. they, they don't break you out between, uh, helicopters and fixed wing, let alone which of the specific models. So you can put in a request, but the, the, the needs of the Marine Corps always dictate. And so, um, you can be the smartest kid in class, but if they don't have a jet slot that week when they select, you're not getting a jet slot. It doesn't matter what your grade is. It's, it's what is your grade compared to what is actually available. Hmm. Excuse me. And then the next thing is they, they break the, that rank ordering of, of the class into three chunks and then they go top chunk, middle chunk, bottom chunk. So the second choice is not the second person in class. It's actually the, 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 the guy at the top of that arbitrary cutoff of that third. Hmm. And then the third choice goes to the top of the bottom third. And so they call it the quality spread so that they have. So they don't they have, have just all the capable well, people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it boils down to a very difficult uh, system to game because it, there are so many arbitrary determinations in there. And so it, it really is luck of the draw. But to, to Matt's point, I started off wanting to fly helicopters. <laughs> then I wanted to fly jets until I did the form syllabus in the flying program and realized that I didn't want to fly in formation all the time because I, I found it to be a, an annoying form of flying. And then uh, there wasn't a whole lot left except uh, C-130s. So that's what I selected. And I was lucky enough to, there was a spot available. So that was the the first lucky thing. And then I also, uh, you're allowed to put in a uh, location preference and I put in California. And I, I got both. So I, I got seen with 30s uh, out of California. So mostly pure dumb luck. Wow. Yeah, because the other options were like Okinawa, Japan, right? Or in Germany or somewhere. I mean. Cherry Point, yeah. Yeah. In, in. Wow. So so then were, so you were ultimately then deployed or you were? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, so after, after going through all that training stuff and becoming a winged aviator, then I, I was shipped off to my unit, which was San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm now married at this point. So I've got a wife and two dogs and we moved to uh, San Diego where I, I learned to actually fly the C-130. And that's mostly done in a simulator. They have a, mm-hmm. they have a big airline style, like high fidelity simulator. And, uh, I learned how to fly the airplane and then we did a lot of flying of the actual airplane in the training areas around Southern California. And then, I don't know, I had like 380 hours of total flight time or whatever, which is, is a low number for non-aviation people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had all my tactical codes and I did my first deployment. That was uh, 2010 and went to uh, Kandahar, Afghanistan. Wow. What was that like? Um, very difficult. I mean, so, so I was, I was flying a, cargo airplane in a relatively safe, uh, airspace environment. Um, you don't fly a C-130 into, you know, hostile airspace because it's not going to survive. Uh, so it's not like what people saw in Baghdad on, you know, day one of the invasion with, with anti-aircraft fire everywhere. I mean, you know, occasionally fixed wing airplanes would be shot at, but, um, when, when my unit was there, uh, we didn't get any bullet holes in our airplanes. So, just for context, um, you know, it was, it was considered combat flying, but the sometimes the challenge was more airspace related and logistics mm-hmm. related. Um, you know, we, we would obviously fly as smartly as we could within that environment because there were threats, but it, it wasn't it wasn't extreme. Um, but yeah, it was it was 
explaining explaining military life and deployments to uh, a non-military audience is to just civilians. a, a task. But um, yeah, it's it's a uh, Afghanistan was interesting. I remember the first time flying over Afghanistan in the daytime, and uh, I, I I just my eyes got big and I was like, wow, we're not winning this thing. Um, Afghanistan is extremely rugged. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of uh, big mountainous terrain. Um, it's very sparsely populated. The the culture there is, it, th- this is academic. You know, I, I wasn't on the ground interacting with people. So um, this was kind of an academic overview from flying over it. But, you know, the, the, these little bands of water coming down from the snowmelt and these tiny little strips of green hugging these really steep canyons. Uh, it, there's no infrastructure there. It's, it's not a, it's not a modern economy. It's, 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 it's medieval. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just, it's how it was, you know, there's, there, there's nothing modern about that place. And so the idea that we're going to come in there and win hearts and minds by, you know, dropping bombs and rearranging the rocks is, is ludicrous and it's just terrain you can't hold. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, so that was interesting psychologically because now, now I'm not a believer in the mission, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm in this position where I'm supposed to, uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't speak against the mission or against the organization or against the government. You know, the, yeah. the, 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 there, there's some constraints when, when you're in that sort of environment. But so, so internally, I'm like, this is bullshit. What are we doing here? But I, I can't, I can't say that or express that. And so now the question is, how do you, how do you safely operate in that environment and be a, a productive uh, team member? Mm. But uh, the, the the wool kind of came off my eyes pretty quick on that. And to be fair, I, I based on my background, you know, I was not an obvious military candidate. I knew I knew that I was making a Faustian bargain of sorts mm-hmm. by joining the military. But so as soon as you characterize it that way, kind of by definition, you're saying the cost is not worth it. the the juice is not worth the squeeze. But so that was your first deployment, and weren't you deployed twice? Yeah, so my next deployment was with a, a Navy air traffic control unit on a one of the smaller aircraft carriers. And so I was a non-flying pilot on a boat full of pilots. Wow. It was interesting. Nice. I'm so curious about, you know, you, you talk about your younger self kind of uh, maybe struggling a little bit socially, you know, and struggling to connect with peers. And then, you know, you go through officer training you go into the military, which in so many so many ways, from my understanding of it as a civilian looking from the outside in, is characterized by this kind of collective brotherhood, teamwork. You know, th- it's a collective, and so I wonder, you know, how how was that transition for you of of being, you know, all the time surrounded by this community? And as an officer, were you kind of in a leadership position then? So because I was in a flying unit, uh, it's all different. So, and then C-130s are even strange by the standards of flying units because we deployed as airplanes. And so the squadron was constantly being chopped up into different chunks where, you know, this one little chunk here might go deploy and then they'd come back while this other one went. And so our our unit was continuously deployed the whole time I was in. Mm-hmm. And so always part of the unit is gone. And so that's a unique dynamic um, because most military units deploy as units. And that also filtered into the social realm because as as a military unit with a bunch of airplanes, we had to have a bunch of officers to fly them. So we had way more officers in in a flying unit than you would have in 
any other unit. And so that changes the dynamics. And then you're also competing with your fellow officers because you're competing for qualifications and instructor billets. And so there's a, there's cooperation, but also competition among the officers. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I know we've been almost at it for an hour now, but I, I wonder what do you take uh, Matthew from, from your Waldorf education into you know, what you did in the military and what you do now for a commercial airline company? What, what, what translates from, from one experience to the other? So uh, one, one thing um, that I think is maybe a strength is that I, I fail well. Um, and what I mean by that is I don't have the psychological burden that some people seem to carry with it. And so uh, lack of perfection is a byproduct of, of everything I do. And I, I, in some sense, expect to fail on some level at everything. And that allows for a, a quicker, a quicker reattack, if you will, because I don't have to then process the emotional burden of, oh my God, that didn't go quite like I planned. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Marine Corps had this thing called the 70% solution, which is, uh, their, their, their branding on kind of a general idea that, uh, something done right now, even if it's imperfect is probably better than not doing something, losing the initiative, and then waiting for this theoretical 100% perfect plan that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, movement, even imperfect, is better than no movement. Yeah, nice. And I think that dovetails with, with Waldorf to the extent that you, you're, you're given that latitude to uh, learn and grow, which involves failure and experimentation and, you know, dead ends and, you know, what in some contexts might be considered failure, but really it's, it's integral to the learning process. And allows you then to okay that didn't work let's try something else you know it's like, like like the beeswax you're making if 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 you had a vision and it's not working right then you change it mm-hmm. or maybe maybe you make it and you think gosh that's kind of lame that was my vision let, let me make a better vision <laughs> and then you work on that right i'm curious at this point in your life how how do you look back on your waldorf education is it something that you can say, wow, that was, you know, that was good for me. Do you, is it something you think about for, you know, for your own family? Like, I'm, I'm wondering just how at this point in your life, you think about your Waldorf experience and how you, um, and also, is it something you've thought about or considered with regards to educating your own kids? Uh, so my my overall view of Waldorf uh, is very positive in general, um, and I definitely would consider it for my kids. Uh, where we are, we don't have a great option that's close. Um, mm-hmm. So my kids are now um, actually in Catholic schools, yeah. but they have a lot of the characteristics that I liked about Waldorf, just not quite with the Waldorf uh, pedagogical focus. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I think if you have a human being in the front of the classroom who wants to teach and has a little bit of latitude to teach in a small, intimate setting. It's, that's going to be vastly better than just about any public school offering I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and, and not to, I'm, I'm not trying to dog on public schools and public school teachers. I'm sure there's some great teachers out there. And obviously many people go through the public school system and are very successful and come out to be great people. But there's this, uh, there's this bureaucratic overbearing uh, entanglement aspect of the public schools that Waldorf is just free from. And that's probably a general statement for, for most private schools. Yeah. I think it's almost that the, the teachers aren't free. 
right? Right. Yeah. That they're beholden. I'm wondering as we start to wrap this up, if you have any questions for us. <laughs> um, I, I would, uh, one, one thing came up earlier. Uh, you were talking about uh, whether or not college still makes sense. And uh, you mentioned employers, I think in passing, but I think it'd be interesting to talk to a, uh, a business person who's in the, in the market for hiring new college graduates and just kind of seeing what, what it is that they're seeing and, you know, mm-hmm. what it is that companies actually look for in people, or maybe, maybe people who start their own companies. Right. So, so the, the cookie cutter path is go to college, get a job at a good company somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, and be a little obedient worker drone somewhere. And really that's what the school system is set up for. It's this, this old school Prussian model set up to train obedient, uh, you know, workers. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's this old Prussian military model. And we, we still basically use that, that framework for school today, which is maybe not well suited to the, the unique challenges of, of our immediate future, as you were alluding to earlier, Taylor. Yeah. I, I remember coming in like my first year, teaching and I was asking students who I consider to be pretty bright and deep thinking. I was like, well, what do you want to, what do you want to do for a career? And they looked at me like, well, I want to be an influencer. I'm like, what? And they're like, are you kidding me? I could travel the world, make videos, put them on YouTube and I can make millions of dollars. Why, why would I, why would I do, do something else? Why would I spend a bunch of money? You know, it was just, it was so, and again, it's just the, you know, the times are different, the the youth are different. And it, it was just for me so jarring to actually see what is in the minds of these people who are now starting that process, right? They're looking into the future and they're saying, what are the paths available to me? And they're like, dude, there are kids my age who are making millions of dollars dancing in their room. Yeah. Don't yeah. tell me what to do, old person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in they're right, but what they may not fully appreciate is the the mathematics involved. You know, what what are the odds of making it there? Oh. That's like twenty years ago. You ask a kid, oh, I don't need to study. I'm going to be in the NBA. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, <laughs> it's true. Like, maybe, it's... but what are the odds? Yeah, yeah what are the odds? It's uh, yeah, yeah. And it it doesn't all boil down to hard work. Yeah, you know, like it's amazing to hear in your story these moments of of serendipity, right? Of things just really working out in your favor and. I think for all of us, it's like important to recognize those moments because we can, you know, it, it's so easy to look at someone younger and say, just work harder, you know, just, just apply yourself. And, and yet we have to recognize the, that, gosh, sometimes it really is just luck. Right. Combined with hard work. When it also feels very chaotic in the moment, but then you look back on it and you can tell a full story of, of what happened you know, step at, step by step. Mm-hmm. Can I ask one last question? Yeah. What's your favorite Matthew Burrett story? <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. I was trying to push that to the end. <laughs> oh boy. So many options. <laughs> I don't have a, a ready-made answer. Okay. Um, Trying try to find one that, that captures captures the essence. Or maybe what do you think is an aspect of younger Matthew that might surprise people who know him now? That would be easier for me to answer if I kind of knew how the community sees him now, which I which I don't. But um, August I, I, August math science teacher. Okay, <laughs> he's a very very good natured and nerdy man. 
No, I mean, I think that's always been true. You know, I, I think some of the, the best times we had together was uh, out in the wilderness doing stuff or, you know, on the rafting trips or, um, we did you know. go through the Grand Canyon together. Oh, nice. 2015. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that, that was more our adult selves. But, um, I remember one time as, as kids, uh, well in college, um, we strapped on our backpacks and just started hiking out in the, in the wilderness. And we were just randomly bushwhacking through, through New Mexico. And, uh, you were looking for a ghost town. Oh, nice. I mean, it was, it was on the map, but yeah, we we're just going to go check it out. But we ended up cutting through these, these ravines and it was just, you know, the, one of those gloriously stupid things that you can get away with when you're a college kid. And, uh, yeah, it's just a, that, you know, willingness to t- take on adventure. Um, I think he had that in droves and, you know, yeah. he, he has that even though he's a, you know, kind-hearted nerd at heart. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we, we, we can be a lot of things simultaneously. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Well, that was super gentle. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. You need, you need to think on that and come back when, you know, you have like a laundry list ready to go. Whew. Okay. Oh. Well, thank you so right, much, well, Matthew, for maybe, being... Maybe on the next podcast, I'll humiliate you with, with some horrible uh, story. <laughs> yeah, well, you had the chance. You had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, do a, we'll do a roast. Yeah, you know, episode 100, we'll just roast Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's... Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Thank okay, you. Guys. Thanks uh, for the time. Really good meeting you. Yep. Yeah, Enjoy great the to meet you. Okay, bye. Okay, take care, right, bye. bye. This concludes another episode of Hard Beeswax. Thanks for listening. For episodes and more, visit our website at hardbeeswax.transistor.fm. Find us on Facebook and Instagram, or you can always email us at hardbeeswax at gmail.com. Hard Beeswax would not be possible without the expertise and time of Andy Smith, our producer and sound whisperer, who has been our hype man from the beginning. And lastly, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in with us and sharing in the absolute magic brought by our guests. Your support means the world to us, and you have our utmost gratitude.